You found us. Welcome to the Holminster Podcast, a church in the centre of Hull. Your place to worship, enjoy, explore and to belong. If you'd like more information in how you can get involved, visit our website at www.hullminster.org. So as I said briefly earlier on, uh, we're continuing the series on the Sermon of the Mount, the second week that we've been doing this. I love, I love the sort of image of, of Jesus on, on a mountainside, people gathering around and just hearing him. There's about three chapters of the middle of Matthew dedicated, we're going to journey through week by week, of him sharing what it means to live a life following him, what it means to journey with him, many challenges in this message. But it's a real, um, it's a really important time that we're setting aside, I think, particularly at the start of this new year, to centre ourselves afresh around the gospel and around the person of Jesus. And I'm sure Eve encouraged us last week again to be listening um, to the whole of the Sermon on the Mount on YouTube. It's out there. David Suchet with his wonderful voice. Um, you can hear it every day. We're just encouraging you, if you if just set some time aside in your week um, to listen to the whole thing. And I'm just going to read a few verses now on tonight's passage, and then Neil's going to come and speak and share with us. So we're picking up at verse 27 of Matthew chapter 5. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It has been said anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Neil, over to you. Yeah, thank you. I haven't got a voice like David Suchet. It's a bit northeast Hampshire with a bit of North London woven in. But welcome. It's lovely to have you with us as we open God's word. Let's pray. God, your word is a lantern to our feet. And particularly as we encounter some of your tough teachings... Help us to know that lighting of our feet. Help us to know that you also crown us with love and compassion. You satisfy our desires with good things, that our youth may be renewed like an eagle's. So I pray there will be renewal as well as illumination going on as we open your word tonight. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. 
I, I thought by delegating the leadership of this service to Eve and Dan, that gets me off the hook. What then happens is when you have a sermon series, the passage that's delegated to you uh, is in their hands. And so Eve started this sermon series last week preaching on the blessings at the beginning of Matthew chapter 5 and delegated to me the passage on lust and divorce. Thank you, guys. Dan, with his pastoral heart, said at about half past five as I was sat at the desk over the way, just sort of going over this. He said, it is all right, is it, for you preaching tonight? I said, it's a bit late for that now, Dan. But there we are. Let's, uh, let's see how God's word can speak to us. And I'm well aware that uh, God's word touches us individually and intimately as well as corporately and and particularly when we're talking about sexual desire and issues that surround our sexual behavior they are very close to us whether we're single whether we're married whether we're divorced uh, whatever our situation whether in a long-term relationship whether we're hoping for uh, a long-term committed loving relationship whether we've been through tough times in relationships what does God's word have to say to us Uh, It's here for a reason. Uh, It wouldn't be otherwise. And uh, I do want to just remind us that the God uh, that we worship also wants good desires, wants uh, good things for us to satisfy our desires. So I hope that in the application of this word, I can be sensitive to what the Spirit might be saying to each of us. Well, let's understand the context. That's really important. As Eve reminded us last week, chapter 4, verse 17, Jesus begins his uh, ministry of preaching and announces that the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, is drawing near. In other words, that needs a response. Something rather important is happening. And his invitation is to those who are often most marginalized in society, those who are poor, those who are sick, those who are ostracized, perhaps partly because of that, And he says, uh, come and be my friend. Basically, these are blessings that God wants to give to you. Those of you who perhaps feel that you're at the bottom of the heap. And so Matthew gathers into chapters 5 to 7, Jesus' manifesto for his ministry. Whether it was one sermon or many sermons gathered into one place, it doesn't really matter. Uh, Luke does much the same in chapter 6 of his gospel. So the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' manifesto. And uh, he commands blessing. They're not earned. But when we have received those blessings, as we receive them, we want to be more like Jesus. When we have that living relationship, it's going to touch our lives in very practical ways. And as Eve reminded us last week, this is not just moral teaching. This is the stuff of God's saved people that have been freely made right with God through Jesus. And then, because of that, our faith motivates us to want to live in a way that honors God and makes us more like Jesus. Jesus claims to fulfill the teachings of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, and it's important to remember that as we come to these passages because uh, he is speaking to people who knew those Scriptures probably better than many of us, Uh, He he often says, you have heard it said in the Sermon on the Mount. In other words, he is assuming that they know uh, something of what God wanted for them as described in the Old Testament. And he gives the big picture of God's purposes for us and he also narrows down into very practical things. 
Now, as we come to look at these areas of sexual desire, of, uh, of lust, of divorce, um, I do want to say that we're all in different stages of inquiry of the Christian faith. Some of us may have been Christians for years, and it's right and proper that we are wrestling with these things. We've been through the University of Life, and we've got a few knocks and stuff going on. And I pray that God will uh, illuminate that bit of whatever I'm going to say that helps you tonight to move on with him. It may be that you've just begun a relationship with Jesus or you're exploring a relationship with Jesus. Well, actually, what God wants you to see most tonight is Jesus. Stuff about how we live morally may come later, but that relationship with Jesus is key. And then as we go through life with our L plates on, we're gradually working out what that means in our homes, in our places of work, in our search for work, how we deal with money, how we deal with ambition, how we deal with personal relationships, and so on. So just hold that in mind, that it may be that God wants you to focus on Jesus and his saving love tonight. As I say, I want to look at these passages firstly, as much as we can, how the hearers would have received it and heard it. And then secondly, what principles we can take from that into our own lives now. Verse 27, you have heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Verse 28, I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So Jesus outlines the issue that he believes is a problem. He's saying this is a problem, and then he will go on to the cure. So what's the issue? Well, you have heard it said, He's referring, of course, primarily to two of the commandments, two of the Ten Commandments. You shall not commit adultery, and you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. It is quite clearly addressed to men and to uh, men who are lusting after married women. Uh, now, we might want to broaden that and say, well, lust is not just an issue for blokes, but clearly uh, that is the focus of Jesus' teaching in the context. And in the Jewish law, Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10, for example, the death penalty could be administered for those who commit adultery. It was very serious. And in a way, it goes right back to Genesis 1 and 2 because God wanted a man and a woman to come together as one flesh, in other words, symboling total vulnerability, total openness, physically, emotionally, and spiritually, and that was something that was very good as part of his creation, something lifelong and committed. Therefore, to break that was in some way violating the creation uh, ideal, that, that perfect creation of God. It was, as I say, addressed mainly uh, to men, it seems. But Jesus extends the jurisdiction from physical adultery to mental adultery. If anyone looks at a woman lustfully, he has already committed adultery with her in his heart. What's that all about? Lustfully. Um, lust is probably not a word we use that much every day in the office or at school. Uh, maybe we do, I don't know. Uh, someone told, said tonight she'd done some research on this. I wasn't quite sure whether it was academic research or not. But it literally means to awaken forbidden desires. So the word lust here, that sense is of what's going on deep inside us to awaken forbidden desires. 
And adultery doesn't just happen usually, does it? You don't just wake up in the morning. I don't have track record of this, but I don't just, you don't just wake up in the morning. I think I'm going to uh, commit adultery with Mrs. So-and-so. Uh, there's been a process. Usually uh, there's been mental playing out of a movie in the mind, that kind of imagining ourselves into that situation. Its, it's, it's roots are deep within. That's what Jesus is saying. Adultery starts deep within our hearts. I'll come back to that. What I don't think he is talking about is those normal, natural desires that say, oh, she's rather attractive, or he's good looking. And there's a glance and say, yes, we admire something that's beautiful as part of God's creation. Now that can lead to temptation. And Jesus was tempted. It's not sinful to be tempted. That is part of how we are wired. And actually, probably none of us would have ever been married, those of us who are married, unless at some point you thought, oh, she's rather nice. Uh, and from that flows a perfectly good and honoring relationship. Um, so we're not talking about that. So if you keep thinking, oh, she's nice, she's nice, he's, he's, I don't think this passage is about that. That is not lust. That is a glance which is admiring God's beauty in another person. Nothing wrong with that. The question is, if that becomes a stare, if that becomes a movie that's played in our minds, that is about lustful intent, using our eyes almost to awaken a desire which is clearly forbidden. So if I, as a married man, start fantasizing about being in bed with another woman, be she married or not, that clearly, that is what Jesus is talking about here. So it begins in the heart, playing this mental movie, which may be secret to us, but God knows what's going on. And ultimately, it could be very destructive to somebody else as well as ourselves. And of course, we can't talk about this without mentioning pornography, because surely pornography is the intentional awakening of sexual desires and is clearly contrary to scripture both for the impact it has on the person viewing it and, let's face it, the number of people who are exploited by the pornography industry. And it's probably one of the hardest things for us to deal with. I was talking to someone some years ago who who runs 12-step programs for alcohol and drug addiction and gambling addiction, and he started adding um, sort of sexual addictions as well. And he said they are the hardest because, A, we don't want to admit it, and B, it's so hard to deal with. We need the power of Jesus to help us. I love the saying by Martin Luther, who said, I can't stop a bird flying over my head, but I can stop it nesting in my hair. Uh, Some of us have got more or less hair than others. But the point is that sexual desires in themselves are not wrong, but inappropriate sexual desires shouldn't be allowed to take root in our minds and our hearts. You know, if, if I didn't have sexual desire for my wife, there'd be something really quite wrong, wouldn't there? That is part of God's good gift, those good desires that come from him. It's about like asking, is fire good or bad? It's the wrong question. Fire that warms us, fire that lights a candle, uh, fire that drives a steam engine or whatever. You know, that's good because it's fire that has... Uh, constraints. Yeah, I had to get steam engine in. I thought you'd like that. 
You know, it's bounded, it's directed, it's doing something positive. But fire in the middle of a forest that sets light, uh, as we've seen over the last few months, to terrible fires is so destructive. And I have to say, brothers and sisters in Jesus, churches are especially at risk from this. I've seen it so many times. And church leaders, I think we are, we do pray for church leaders that they will be protected in this realm because there's often a closeness of working uh, relationships and emotional stuff gets dealt with and it's so important to keep the boundaries uh, right without being standoffish but being proper in the way we behave. Um, I I was a a theological student, I did a placement uh, at a church in the home counties and I arrived there just as the youth leader had run off with the worship leader. If you want to disable a church overnight, get the youth leader to run off with the worship leader. It just had a catastrophic impact on that church. And um, believe you me, the fallout went on for years afterwards. You've probably seen high-profile cases in the media. Last year, Durham Diocese, there was a curate and a a vicar who got into an unhealthy relationship. Their own marriages fell apart. I don't know what's happened there. They've uh, obviously uh, not been allowed to carry on ministering. A bishop years ago in Wales ran off with his chaplain and, uh, and there have been many, many others. And I suspect these are the tip of the iceberg because beneath that, there's all this mental adultery going on, awakening forbidden desires. So what's the cure? Well, it seems utterly brutal, doesn't it? If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out, throw it away. If your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off, throw it away. I don't think this is supposed to be taken literally. If you think bad thoughts, chop your head off. No, I don't think so. He's making a point using hyperbole, isn't he? So they think, gosh, this is serious. If you've got a cancer, you need really quite serious surgery to get it out so it doesn't keep growing. So uh, the word here that he uses causes you to stumble or is a stumbling block is the Greek word scandalon. It literally means, the the NIV is a bit weak here actually, it literally means uh, the lure in a a trap, a bait stick. So in other words, it's the lure that you put into the trap to lure some unsuspecting little bunny rabbit or weasel or or rat or whatever to its destruction. I thought you'd like the bunny rabbit one, yeah. So it's it's catching the unwary, it's like a tripwire, a stumbling block. Well, we love being lured, don't we? Let's be honest. Actually, being lured can be one of our favourite activities, especially when we're feeling a bit down or lonely or fed up. And it's so hard to shut the doors on our thoughts. Just saying, I won't think about sexual desires is probably the first-rate way to actually bring it to the front of our minds. That's, That's the trouble. That's where we need the Holy Spirit. And various people have suggested, how on earth can we deal with this? If Jesus says, you know, cut off those things which are causing it, well, maybe the answer is to try and obliterate them by doing more positive things. It may be uh, in Christian action and service. Uh, What we're doing within our churches and communities actually absorbs a lot of our energy and our thinking and our inspiration. 
filling our mind with good things. That's Psalm 103. God wants good desires to be at work in us. He wants good things for us. Uh, I know it's probably not theologically sound, but Peter Pan, you remember he said you have to think lovely thoughts in order to fly, didn't he? And Harry Potter, you know, you have to think good thoughts to get one of those Patronus charm things to ward away. You know, I, I, I wouldn't want to build a great theology on that, but the principle is actually if our mind is full of good things, then it's less likely to have the bad things dominate. There may be some specific things that you do. I, I know um, one or two people who have a mutual accountability over what they view on the internet. So it, it sends a list. I think there must be a bit of software somewhere where you can just, it, it sends a list to a friend that you trust of which websites you've been looking at. Now, if that helps to cure an issue with looking at porn, it's probably worth doing it. It sounds drastic, but it may be just the right thing to do. And perhaps, and Eve raised this point, I hadn't thought of it until you raised it, actually having a much better understanding in our churches of what good, healthy Christian friendship looks like is really helpful. And maybe that's something that we'll be exploring. Uh, I think it's a really important point. Well, it may be you want to chat about this afterwards, but we'll move on now to divorce, to that passage 31 to 32. It has been said anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce, but I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Wow. I have never preached on this passage, and I've been ordained 24 years, I think. So what are we going to make of it? It's one of the toughest teachings. And there are different views among sincere Christians. We have to look at chapter 19 of Matthew, verses 3 to 17, where Jesus bases his teaching back in Genesis 1 and 2, as before, where he says actually God's intention was for a husband and wife to be married in lifelong, faithful, committed relationship till death us do part. What I would say, and I'm not the only one, many commentators say that Jesus in this particular passage is speaking to a particular context in first century Palestine. And so I, I'm going to paint what I think that context probably was, and to some extent, whilst I might give a line, you might want to think this through for yourself. So what was going on? What was going on? In the first century Palestine, marriage was under massive threat. The whole institution of marriage and family life was threatened with falling apart, the collapse of the home. And that was partly because of the Jewish understanding, understanding of marriage that had gone wrong and the Greek and Roman influences that were coming in, particularly to the early Christian church. So the Jews theoretically had a very high view of marriage. Uh, far more so than most of the world around them. And it was so important that um, unless you were studying the law, like a rabbi or for a period of time as a, as a scribe or a Pharisee, it was your sacred duty as a man, a Jewish man, to take a wife, a Jewish wife, obviously, and to honor God's teaching back in Genesis to uh, be fruitful and multiply. If a man refused to do that, he was slaying his posterity. 
Okay? In other words, he was stopping his family line, which was so important to the Jews. And so divorce, set against that, you can see why God hates divorce, Malachi chapter 2, 16. But by the first century, the practice fell well short of that and was totally imbalanced in favor of the man. So a woman was a thing in the eyes of the law. She had no rights. She couldn't initiate a divorce, even, uh, even though the law of Moses gave uh, a, a reason if there was uh, violence or sexual immorality or unfaithfulness. In practice, it was practically impossible for a woman to initiate divorce. Whereas a man, if she committed some uncleanness, that's the translation, he could initiate divorce. He could issue a bill of divorcement and two witnesses, men, would witness that and he could send her out the house and her livelihood away from her family. And it might be something as trivial as spoiling the dinner or um, having her head uncovered in public or talking to a, a different man in public or just being disrespectful of the in-laws. Uh, have you ever been disrespectful of the in-laws? I'm sure you haven't. Or perhaps being a bit quarrelsome or, or just simply because he thought she was unattractive. I mean, it's, it's shocking, isn't it? So that was a complete distortion of the beauty of what God had initiated in Genesis 1 and 2. So the Christian church, which largely initially was, was Jewish people who become Christian, was obviously inheriting that moral background. Add to that, layer on that, the Greek views of marriage. Uh, ladies, you're going to love this. They had a very low view of women in the Greek and Roman society. There was uh, an assumption that a woman would be a paragon of virtue, uh, would be pure, would stay in the home, uh, be secluded, and uh, she yet was allowed to have a husband who might marry her in order to have children legally and for her to look after his home. But there was no stigma whatsoever about him going off and having a few concubines or courtesans for his own pleasure and gratification. Now, that doesn't strike me uh, as terribly equable. I don't know if it does you. So, uh, for example, uh, even their religion was shot through with this. So the temple of Aphrodite in Corinth, we were learning about Corinth this morning here, had a thousand priestesses who were basically temple prostitutes, pretty posh prostitutes, some of them, apparently, some of the most expensive in the Greco-Roman world. And it was their way of funding temple building. There we are, fundraising. Perhaps we won't use that particular um, tactic. So uh, when the church... I, I don't get any ideas, director of operations. And we're not going to sell indulgences either. So when the church said actually marriage should be about chastity and fidelity, then that seemed rather novel and countercultural. And it's interesting that even in, in Jesus' teaching... He puts most blame on the man who, who causes a divorce, who makes her the victim of adultery. So even in Jesus, he's seeing that the one who initiates divorce uh, without you know, genuine reason, except for unfaithfulness, is clearly the one at blame. Now, this is my view. Um, what I see from this passage is that clearly marriage is very good that marriage needs working at. A marriage in peril 
needs every resource offered to it to try and save it. But the realities are that some marriages are abusive, exploitative, subject to unfaithfulness, and some marriages the love just simply dies. People drift away. Uh, I've seen it many times, and I, I guess some of you perhaps been in that situation. And in a way, I, 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 we were discussing this, Eve and I, the other day. Actually, if somebody's got married as, they, as not a Christian, if you like, where they haven't got that reference point, then you can't expect somebody suddenly to think, oh, yes, I should be conforming to Jesus' standards on this. But actually, obviously, within a church and a Christian relationship, hopefully we would work a bit harder to make a marriage work. But pastorally... I could not say to somebody who's remarried or a divorcee who's married, you're committing adultery. I just cannot do that. I cannot believe that the compassion and love of God would speak those words into that situation. Now, some of you may disagree with that, and I'm perfectly uh, open to discuss that. But actually, if a marriage, you've done everything in your power to be at one with that person and honour the vows you made in good faithfulness, whether before God or, or whether not, then actually, if love dies, then we believe new start, fresh start. And I personally would say, okay, perhaps after a due period and a preparation and dealing with all the fallout, maybe from a previous relationship, as far as you can, I'm prepared to remarry a couple where one or both have been divorced. And to say, let's pray for God's blessing. Let, let this new relationship be energizing and beautiful and live up to the standards that God wants. As I say, sincere Christians might disagree with that. Um, but that is my own view when I look at pastoral uh, application of this tough teaching. So in summary, tough passages, and you may or may, may not agree with me, but I think first see Jesus, first see Jesus, first see his blessings and his compassion and the, uh, the desire he has for good things in our lives. Let us see the Bible taking sexual desire and marriage seriously. Let's see that they are both good things in themselves, but let us hear its clear line on awakening forbidden sexual desire. And that will be true whether we're married, single or not, or whatever. And let us support those who are really struggling with that and acknowledge that many of us can be really tempted and weak in these areas and to have a good Christian friend, counsellor, confidant with whom we can say, look, I'm really wrestling with this. Please pray for me. That is important. Let us go through... Uh, every effort to save marriages that are in trouble um, and, and yet with pastoral sensitivity help those who do uh, want to start a new relationship if that seems the right thing for them. I, don't, I can't really say a lot more than that. That's where I am with this scripture, with this teaching. And you may want to come and talk to me afterwards. You might want to talk to Eve or to, to Anne, who's also one of our ministers, or to Dan, um, either tonight or at some other point. Don't leave it thinking, I don't know what to do with this. Uh, or equally, if you just say, well, actually, I want to come to Jesus first 
and then ask for the Holy Spirit to help me work out this stuff in my life. And I want to leave the final word again to Psalm 103. The Lord forgives our sins. He heals all our diseases. He redeems our lives from the pit. He crowns us with love and compassion. He satisfies our desires with good things so that our youth is renewed like the eagles. Amen. Well, we hope you've enjoyed listening to one of our sermons. If you'd like to learn more about what we do, then follow us on social media or visit our website, www.holminster.org.